0: listening to an OTB AM podcast you can watch the show or listen live every weekday morning at 745 AM subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream for more stuff just like this very good morning to you. It's only a to world and we just live in it. You're very welcome along to Thursday morning's OTBAM. We're here with you all the way until half past nine this morning as ever. If you want to get involved, just leave us a comment or use the hashtag OTBAM on Twitter. That's probably the easiest thing for everybody to do. That way we can uh, pick it up and we'll bring your comments to the masses. And uh, it is masses of people at this point who are listening to us on our shiny new website, offtheball.com. If you want to just listen to us in the morning like a radio show, all you've got to do is go on there and there's a live button that you can click and then presto. Uh, even if you navigate away from that site, he says, "Is that true? Can you do is that is that really happens?" Nice? Well, sure. Uh, report back to us if it isn't. Oh, and how are you? Very well. How are you? Um, you know, I'm a little bit taken aback by the genius that is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Mm-hmm. the baby-faced tactician I saw him called by Henry Winter this morning, which was a bit like, "Come on, Henry, come on." The baby-faced Busby, I think, uh, is what he's really going to be known as. Well, him and Matt Busby are the only ones who won their first four. Busby won his first five league games? I think so, yeah. So he's got one more to... to um, I mean, he's already had a Ferguson. Yeah, well, like, once he clocks off Matt Busby, then he looks at pre-war managers
1: after that. gonna Gunnar share is really just charting himself through Manchester United history and sporting history in general as you know, someone like Romelu Lukaku can pop up with the first touch of a game, put the ball in the back of the net,
0: and uh, history is beckoning. We were, we were talking about what he has to do to get the job and I was like, win the Champions League. You know, he's not going to win the Champions League. Now you've got to change my right? I mean, why wouldn't he win the Champions League at this point? Because he's done nothing like, just that beat, spectacular. just beat Newcastle in Newcastle. It's a good result. It's I a mean, good result, but there do is... Do Marino never won a game at the game park?
1: also, kind of a quirk of Jose Mourinho's managerial uh, stint in the Premier League, to be fair. Uh, And there are strange ones involving Newcastle. The thing is, they haven't even done anything yet to convince me that they're going to beat Paris Saint-Germain. To convince me, that is. I'm now more likely to think that they have a chance. But there's nothing to say, yeah, there's something about this Manchester United team which kind of gives a lot of base to the idea that they can beat anyone on their day, which, to be fair, we were saying about Jose
0: Mourinho's side, and this team, in their defence, are looking a hell of a lot better than that. When the draw was made against Paris Saint-Germain, didn't you think, ooh, that'll be a nice paddling over two legs, that'll be a a fitting, suitable end to the Farrago that has been the Jose Mourinho era? And now it's like... I don't know. There's a bit of flakiness about Paris Saint-Germain in these big European games. Will they really like it up to in Old Trafford? Well, maybe the flakiness is all down to their previous manager in, in
1: Unai Emery, but that that remains to be seen for for a while longer. <laughs> like it, it's true, they, we'll certainly be watching, and I can't see Manchester United getting into a position where they take a paddling before that. So regardless what happens between now and the middle of February when when the first leg takes place, we're still going to have a level of interest going into that game. Now previously the level of interest would have been how many goals can Manchester United concede, whereas now it's can Manchester United pull off a fairly significant upset. And it's significant not only in the course of a a team like Paris Saint-Germain, once again, uh, if you want to use the term, bottling a big European night. But it's significant in the course of this Manchester United team. The the first time, really, that a, a lot of these Manchester United players can actually stand up and say, we've done something really special. Like, winning the FA Cup under Van Hal wasn't that special. Winning the Europa League was relatively special on the graph of, say, the likes of Marcus Rashford and Anthony Martial. But it's not a real sort of... Holy moly, look, look, yeah. look, around, look around at the moment. We, we've just conquered one of the superpowers of European football. That's Mbappe, that's Neymar. Exactly. We just... We just Slash them. Because that was, in my opinion, one of the moments, and you know, I, I kind of took the piss out of them the, the morning after about you know the whole special nature of Anfield tonight. Liverpool beat PSG this year. Obviously tongue-in-cheek, because that was a significant moment in Liverpool's season this year, I felt. Especially the way that game went. Especially the, the way it could have been a win for Paris Saint-Germain on, on that evening in Anfield. It is an outstanding team. It is one of the artificially created superpowers of, of modern European football. And if you can take them down, it's unbelievable what, what that can do for your favourite tournament momentum and, and confidence in the season and what, what it would do to rubber stamp Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as a real contender for the Manchester United job. So I, I have kind of gone on a journey over the last 24 hours thinking he doesn't have a chance. Watching him last night it was actually probably the most impressive Solskjaer performance yet just because it was the, the old uh, chestnut of winning without being overly impressive. And by not being overly impressive, I mean having Phil Jones at the heart of the defence who always looks like a liability. Um, with a couple, a couple of those opportunities for Christian Atsu in the first half, which kind of made you think to yourself, this Manchester United defence, the, the people who are the naysayers of this defence
0: really are on the money. Do they have enough time to fix the defensive issues between now? So their next league game is on the 13th of January against Spurs, at Spurs. And they're going on a warm weather training camp to Dubai between now and then, I think. Yeah, um, staying at the 350 quid, and I, I saw mm-hmm. in the back, I was like, do people care about how much Manchester United are spending on their hotel bills? It's like, it, it, you know, the, the implication is like, oh, look at this, look at the money they're spending. Look how rich Manchester United are. But I would have thought it would be more expensive than £350 a night. Does that annoy people? Well, I think, we're, I think
1: we're all intrigued by the absurd riches of modern football, and that's about it. I, I don't think anybody can get outraged by it. It's not taxpayers' money. It's not a grand a night. No, I, I would have thought that it would have been a grand a night, £350 a night. I'm not going to lie, I thought it was a little bit low. Maybe they're being extremely cheap, and that's why it was carried on the back pages of the newspapers yesterday. I don't know, I didn't. I just, uh, I mean, I'm not an expert on Dubai hotel prices. I mean, Maybe I mean, one day I will become an expert it, it, on It's interesting
0: it, that the, the paper thought that it, this was an important piece of, a little tidbit for us. But anyway, that but is how they are it. preparing for that crucial game yeah. against Tottenham. Yeah, um, like obviously that, again, if, you know, if, if he manages to match Sir Matt's record of uh, five successive victories at the start of his I mean in a way win against Spurs against this Spurs team playing the way Spurs are playing at the moment that would be pretty impressive and
1: also that was let's not forget the mirror image that, that would provide because you talk about the first Spurs game this season, which just sets Jose Mourinho off into you know, the, the three frenzy and uh, kind of him storming out at a press conference where you thought to yourself, Well, this is hilarious. I kind of hope this continues for as long as possible, yeah. but I know it's going to end probably before Christmas, and sure enough, it did. So, that would be the real hammering home of how improved this Manchester United team are is because it is against Spurs, it is revenge for what happened. Uh, the, the, the moment that sent Jose Mourinho insane, really, was that Spurs game. and uh, uh, they can uh, they can avenge that.
0: So Jose Mourinho is now like one of the worst managers in world football because of what every single bit of success they're going to a No matter how, how short lived this is, it just goes to show how crap Mourinho was. Is that like is that the easy uh, information information out equation that we have at the moment? It would be the easy and easy out if
1: this continues. It might it might be factually correct though. It might be, and like to be fair, it, 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 there's no guarantee that this actually kind of manifests itself Or Ole Gunnar Solskjaer turns around and is like this a group of Manchester United players are outstanding. Uh, the thing that might happen, and it could lead to a lot of revisionism, is that this Chelsea team clearly don't have enough about them to cement themselves as top four just yet. This Arsenal team clearly do not have enough about them to cement themselves as top four candidates just yet. Manchester United are only six points behind, and out of those three teams, I'm suddenly looking at Manchester United and I'm thinking... I kind of fancy them over Chelsea and Arsenal.
0: Over okay. Chelsea, I don't know, 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 I don't know. No, unless Eden Hazard leaves at, at Christmas, now, in the next three weeks, which is not, not, definitely not going to happen. Come no. on, there's no way they're going to catch Chelsea. A team that I would have been confident
1: in that wouldn't have got caught is a team that wins that game last night, that doesn't join at all, that doesn't have an Alvaro Morata whose who's confidence is lower than anything we've seen from Romelu Lukaku even this season. He, there's he's, strong that they're going to ship him out this this January, right? It seems that way. Uh, like the, the thing is, who do they get in? They, they need to make a signing in that department fairly urgently. And we all know that it's tough enough to make a signing in any position. Wow. Um, I thought they had the Higuain thing done, but then apparently it, uh, it cooled in the last 24 hours. Well, the thing is, Higuain in the season 2018-2019 is a vastly different Higuain to, say, two seasons ago, where... Or, you say, what was it, three, four seasons ago when Arsenal were prepared to pay 50 million quid for him, which at the time would have been huge, huge money. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very different prospect. To be fair, when you've got the Champions League at stake here, and they will similarly look at Arsenal and Manchester United and say to themselves, well, this is a big opportunity for us to ensure we get back into the Champions League as well then taking a punt on Gonzalo Higuain might not be the worst shout, but there are certainly a hell of a lot more uh, better strikers in Europe than Higuain at the moment, and he's certainly dropped down the pecking order in the last couple of years. Available,
0: though, available to... Well, that's the thing. That, that yeah. is the thing you've, you've got to about. It's that. a shot to nothing, because if you're getting rid of Morata, you're getting that stink out of the place, and you're like hoping that you know, the fresh change of scene turns Higuain back into somebody who can like, kick the ball in a straight line it's true
1: it helps I I was just just back on the Champions League point um, I I kind of flicked on Sky Sports News before when they were previewing the games last night and Ian Dowie was asked can Manchester United get to the top four and he did that thing you know when pundits try to be really poignant where they just say one word and just say nothing else he was like no and the studio kind of fell silent he was like what do you mean what do you mean no of course they can qualify for the Champions League. To actually dismiss Manchester United as non-runners for the Champions League race is one of the most idiotic things you can say about this year's Premier League. Because they're clearly in the mix. The top four race is going to be fascinating. He's, uh, he's a nice guy. No, you know, he is. You know, that's as much as you would say. No, without question. But I'm not quite sure what he was saying. Uh, you can automatically say, not a chance, that Manchester United are going to be in the top four race.
0: They're six points behind Chelsea and Arsenal have the capacity to bottle it big time. Kieran Boyle says, uh, Fellas, I listen to the hashtag OTBAM podcast every morning in Florida. I was back home for a week. Good to hear the show on regular time. Thanks for um, tuning in, Kieran. You're making us jealous about your uh, Floridian lifestyle. Um, th- there was other quotes from the Golf Digest interview that Roy McIlroy did. Speaking of Florida, that was the connection. Um, where he was talking about the European tour being a stepping stone. So. I was like, that was even way more damning. Yeah. Stuff that they carried. So that's carrying the papers today. It was almost like somebody read that one. Oh, this, this bit's interesting. It's like, oh, my life's in America now. I'm married. She's, my wife's American. It's like, um, not the bit where it's like, you know, I'm, I'm using this to leap. Yeah, exactly. Previously it was. This I is a logistical move. Yeah. And that's like, they, they put like loads of extra money there. But who cares? There's more money and more points available. Why would you be, it was like. Far better golfers. It was kind of as aggressive as you could be while well, trying to be nice, you know. It's just classic Rory McIlroy, really, yeah, isn't he it? Accidentally it is. talked himself into a shitstorm.
1: Yeah, and uh, like I, I haven't actually seen much blowback towards this, but uh, I can imagine that, uh, the Rory McIlroy naysayers aren't too happy with uh, with his latest utterances. Pff, uh,
0: the Rory McIlroy naysayers also need to like calm down a bit. Yeah, like this certainly isn't. Uh, uh, you could sort. Oh, uh, why would you play for Ireland? Well, well, that that's the
1: sort of. Um, I'm not sure can you say that that was kind of justifiable anger but it's certainly more justifiable than getting angry with somebody because he's left the European tour as if we have some sort of continental pride over this tour that takes place in this continent where actually the biggest events take place in the Middle East.
0: We're um, Sadiq Khan turning the London eye into the uh, flag of Europe at, um, at midnight, the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve. I'm not going to lie I felt so much prou- pride for Team Ryder Cup and all that sort of stuff when he did that. Yeah. Alright, here's what's coming up on the show. Uh, Mike Carlson is going to join us to talk about the uh, situation in the NFL. It's wildcard weekend this weekend, which means it's actually a really good weekend to start tuning in if you haven't already. And there's also a massive scandal. Oh, it's not really a massive scandal. There's a, a brilliant soap opera, is a, the correct way of talking about it, enveloping the Pittsburgh Steelers at the moment with Antonio Brown trying to talk his way out of the team, having basically quit on the team uh, last week. Um, yeah, so that's uh, interesting stuff coming up a little bit later on. Pep versus Klopp, that is the big game tonight. We'll talk in great detail about that around about 8.25. Uh, they were kind of, you know horrifically talking each other up in the most grotesque terms, um, yeah. you know. Get a room stuff. Exactly. It was like, I mean, which who's the top and who's the bottom? That was the only thing that was to be decided on that one. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit later top. on. Peps on top. Yeah. <laughs> <I> don't know. <laughs> no, it, it is...
1: Aye. He says you're the best in Europe, whereas Klopp says you're the best in the world. Klopp has pandered far too, far too, uh, he's gone way too far, basically, Jürgen Klopp. Uh, so
0: that <laughs> leads me to, to, to leads to my hypothesis that Pep's on top. Um, and uh, also, uh, Daniel Harris is going to join us <laughs> in a little while. Well, that took a turn. This morning, let's go with uh, the examiner first. Nobody trusts us. Pep claims Liverpool now Europe's finest, but City best in world counters Klopp. I mean, this is like GAA speak taken to the nth degree, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. It's gone beyond the
1: elements of hyperplay. Was there a, a situation where we, anybody could make a genuine case that Manchester City were the best team in the world? Like, certainly top three, you could say, but their Champions League failings have certainly been a black mark against the team, for sure. I like to say at any point in the year 2018, even that they were better than Real Madrid uh, is a bit of a peak because peak like Manchester City kind of came along the, the same time when Real Madrid were going to do three in a row in the Champions League. I I, I don't know. I don't know if he said it at any point. And can you say that now? I, I think the way they've shown a lot of weaknesses over Christmas. I don't think you can say that whatsoever. So it's just Jurgen Klopp losing the run of himself, really, and trying his best to to not make a a big deal out of this thing, which is Liverpool being talked up by Pep Guardiola.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I think they can all deal with each other's... um, the hyping up, but can't they? They, None of this matters. Even if if Pep was to come out and slag off Liverpool, he did say it's been so long since they won, they're going to start feeling the pressure. So that was like the... Mind games, but the mind game is not quite at the level of Ferguson. No, not quite. Uh, like,
1: it, what do you kind of expect him to do? Though is, is the question. Like, what do you want Pep to come out and actually say
0: um, to actually get to stir the pot properly? Because this Liverpool team are like they're a, a bunch of stuff and nothing. You know, okay. Oh, look, we run really fast and we've got uh, some good attacking players. I mean, if they hadn't bought Van Dyke, they'd be nowhere. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to pick holes in the current Liverpool team. Extremely hard. That midfield—that's the worst, most pedestrian midfield I've seen in world football. Blech. Look at that. Yeah, like, like that the, makes me sick. That midfield. I, I sick always to the pit of my ticky-tacky stomach. But that—that's the thing, like because Pep is like
1: such a perfectionist, and the way he kind of approaches his uh, enthusiasm for football and all that sort of stuff is that he's always kind of one misstep away from everybody saying, "I actually really dislike Pep." He's—he's he's not a dislikable man, but you always feel he's one line away from becoming somebody where you're like, I actually don't quite like uh, the way you're speaking there. So I I think he tries to overcompensate for that, and I think he's got a realisation for that on his end as well. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I don't know. I think Pep sometimes just kind of teeters very close to the point where he could become Fergie if he wanted to. Fergie? Yeah, he he, he could say something that that is like, oh God, this guy guy really thinks about things in a a twisted way towards uh, opposition managers and things like that.
0: Yeah, I'd say... I'd say Pep is very good at um, censoring himself. I would say,
1: like, he, um, he did make a comment as well in his press conference yesterday saying, We are Manchester City, it is usual for us to be behind. We are not Liverpool, we are not Manchester United. I'm not sure how Manchester City fans would, would feel about that. Well, I
0: mean, historically, that would have been the case up until uh, a bunch of um, businessmen pumped in billions to, you know, make us all forget about.
1: Well, historically, what's exactly. Going on
0: part of the world uh, so sports Thursday from the Irish Times Lukaku and Rashford strike to make it 4 from 4 for Solskjaer and then it's the rest of the match reports from last night including the one from Burnley where I was just looking at the uh, the scores and the team sheets and I was like oh Robbie Brady it's great come back on straight red at the last uh, couple of minutes of the game as well so uh, stopped an equaliser basically with that um, so he'll be out for a while I didn't see it now so it was a, a brilliant straight red I, I would have thought so yeah I, I think he made the right call the thing is
1: from that result last night, obviously, from an Irish perspective, Brady was sort of the big news. But Huddersfield are doomed now; they're they're finished. I don't think they've. I think they're on an eight-game losing streak at this point after that defeat last night. I don't think they've ever lost eight games in a row. Um, so it's it's pretty pretty dark times for them. The thing is, it's it's hard to blame the manager for what's happened to them, given a, a huge lack of investment last summer and the fact that they overachieved big time last season. But ultimately, do do they have to look for the emergency button at this point,
0: or do they get relegated well, kind of like Burnley does? Be very careful. The last time you suggested there might be any possibility they sacked David Wagner, you got absolutely slaughtered on uh, Twitter by uh, the one Huddersfield fan who listens to the show.
1: Yeah, and and fair enough. He's obviously brought Huddersfield town to a level that their fans have (coughs) never known heights of. Of course, they had it back in the John Giles era of being relatively
0: good, but in the modern era, Huddersfield, they're going through a golden period. The owner said that um, there's no chance of him sacking Wagner, but... But like. that doesn't actually mean anything. It? We won't sleepwalk our way into relegation, uh, but manager's safe. Sounds to me like manager not that safe.
1: Well, does David Wagner not have the nows to get promoted straight back? Or has, in the space of two seasons, has this championship actually got to a point where it's passed Huddersfield by? If like, like you look at last season, Wolves, uh, one of the best championship teams we've seen, like the likes of Leeds this year, playing some fantastic football, of course, kind of stuttering over the last couple of weeks. Like, would Huddersfield get promoted last season or this season in the Championship? With playing the way they did two seasons ago, obviously they won the playoff final. So there's an argument to be made that they wouldn't. So they're going to have to make a step up again and not fall off too much if they when they do get relegated. Because I think that is going to happen.
0: I think Wagner is obviously a really good manager. I mean, he has to be, yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they won't sack him because uh, the owner is trying to sell the club as well. So. Yeah, much easier to set a club that's still in the Premier League than one who's just got relegated, although there is obviously the parachute payment. So. Uh, Aldom, the unsung hero on Liverpool's charge. Um, uh, Liverpool clash almost a final. says Guardiola. I mean, it is if they lose. If they win, it still isn't. I mean, obviously, it's not quite a fatal blow to Liverpool or anything. A four-point lead at this point of the season.
1: Not at all. Uh, the thing is how they react to that. Like there's some interesting stuff in um, the Telegraph this morning talking about, um, or Jamie Carragher rather, kind of sticking up for Liverpool and the fact that they're not bottlers whatsoever. And uh, he kind of talks about he goes through the, the three different periods where you could say Liverpool bottled the title challenge. And he talks about 2002, saying the problem wasn't overexcitement or pressure, but trying to chase one of the best Arsenal sides ever. He talks about 2009, which was Rafa and his, his fact rant, saying that they won ten of their final eleven games. The only game that they didn't win was that four-all draw with Arsenal, and basically it was Ronaldo and United who were just too good for them in 2009. And then, of course, 2014, uh, trailing City by five points at the midway point, which he says that people tend to forget, won 12 of their last 14 games, with the Chelsea defeat being their only loss. And over those three run-ins, they had 27 home games over those three years and only one defeat. So he's providing us with with, uh, enough statistics here to actually give us a fairly compelling argument that when it comes down to the home stretch, Liverpool have really just been too far behind for them to actually make up big numbers, bar, say, 2014, uh, the fact that they bottle it in a big way perhaps isn't the truth. Uh, I mean... You're, of you're course t- the idea of Stephen Gerrard slipping is like the most beautiful personification of bottling
0: something we've ever seen. Yeah, so let's not, let's not <laughs> in any way diminish that. Let's not try and re- revise history. Oh, no, that's just... a. Uh, that's just the ebb and flow of a season that evens itself out. they obviously had some really good luck earlier on in the year to bring them to that point, And this was the bit but of a last It luck, wasn't earlier on in the on year. It
1: wasn't earlier on in the year. It was throughout that whole run. They were lucky every week.
0: And so they stored it all up. Maybe and not then lucky.
1: All, I'm sure they had strokes of luck here and there. But they, no, they I'm were not having absolutely this. magnificent football. It's
0: the, it's the biggest bottle job in world sport. Like, it's right up there with anything. We do not let this slip. We do not like this. Uh, like it's spectacular. It's yeah, it's, it's amazing. Comedic. It should
1: be made into its its own five part HBO dramatic series one day, hopefully. But ultimately, is it the biggest bottle job in sport? I don't think so. It's that it's it's just the most
0: it's the most dramatic. Most, I, I mean, it probably isn't the biggest bottle job in all of sport. There was like a the Super Bowl winning, two years ago. There was a horse winning the Grand National that jumped over a puddle and lost. Yeah. So like, but it's it's close enough. Y- yeah. it is. No. It. Like. I would
1: I would certainly contend that they bottled it within that microcosm of a game, and it was kind of funny given what Steven Gerrard had said previously. And you know, when it came to what happened at Selhurst Park, you know that sort of stuff happens. You know, you, you can have a slip, especially when you, you when you're in that sort of run. So, I, like, I I just don't think it's as significant. I tend to come down on Jamie Carragher's side in this. I, I don't think it's as as
0: kind of ingrained in the, the Liverpool psyche as we all think. I just want to remind you about our competition. We've got two pairs of tickets to give away to Leinster against Ulster this Saturday at 5.15 in the RDS. To be on the chance of winning, comment wherever you're watching and let us know your favourite rivalry in our sports. Or let us know what you think, using hashtag OTBA, and you can just uh, retweet that as well, and we'll also stick it in the draw. Uh, okay, so uh, the back of the Irish Independent this morning, it's almost a final for us, Guardiola. City boss believes nobody trusts us to stop Red title challenge, as he aims to turn up the ah, it's a done deal, don't worry about it, it's Pat Guardiola. It's like, it's, just, it's Liverpool, they're going to win. They're going to, you know, we've spent all this money, put together this entire system, you know, bought an entire hierarchy of people to work in the background just so I would come here, and then invested all the money in the world. And, you know, Liverpool is going to beat us in January. I'm giving up. Like the obvious thing that happens tonight is that it's a draw and
1: it perhaps doesn't live up to the hype. I, I think there's. it's hard to make an argument that it's going to be a dour affair just because of how the two teams play. But there's, there's every possibility it's a draw. Like, is a seven-point uh, seven gap from Manchester City, if they make that up with one of the most sensational runs home i oh, have yeah. seen, is that a bottle job from Liverpool? Yeah. So I think seven points is. Yeah. Uh, I, I do think if Liverpool don't lose tonight... Even if they lose tonight, I think they've set themselves up nicely for a pretty big bottle job. This will be the year they bottle us. But uh, just going to return to that point historically, I think it's. Well, and it run.
0: depends. If, if Virgil van Dijk gets injured, I don't think it's a bottle. Like if their best players, get, so that's if that's if that's the thing that happens. But if Virgil van Dijk suddenly starts like scoring on goals, if Allison starts turning into Carius, then yeah, that's a bottle job. Um, I'm sure that Liverpool fans are delighted we're talking like this. Uh, O'Driscoll, Sexton's captaincy style comes across as confrontational. So Brad just was on Wednesday Night Rugby last night with Keith Wood talking with Dave McIntyre and um, they were chatting away obviously about the leinster Munster game, Munster-Leinster game at Thurman Park and the issue of um, Sexton's captaincy came up and the quotes were, I think Johnny antagonised Frank Murphy a little bit early on I can understand to a certain degree what he was saying. I think from a captaincy perspective, Johnny is an antagonistic type of person. He's always He always has been, and he is fiery. That's what makes him deliver time and time again because he gets that out of himself. We'll bring you that clip on the show a little bit later on. Um, And then do I have one more do. yet? Liverpool may crack. I mean, they may, they may not. It's the back of the Times-Ireland edition That's Pep Guardiola uh, ratcheting things up in a very (coughs) even-handed, sophisticated, suave, debonair kind of way. Uh, Ireland backs Russia penalty. So this is the statement yesterday from um, John Tracy. That there's been yet another roadblock put in place by Russia is not a surprise. Now it's time for WADA to take strong action and declare them non-compliant. This is um, Sport Island, one of 16 national anti-doping organisations who have called on WADA to take strong action against Russia after the deadline to provide critical doping data from the Moscow lab ran out on Tuesday. So, uh, a cold war by proxy. Mm. Uh, (laughs) I would like to kind of see the inner workings of what's
1: actually happened here. The actual physical conversations that happen from the WADA officials showing up at the lab to the Russian officials saying, sorry, your equipment isn't being allowed in. The correspondence between WADA and Russia and Russia saying, sorry, no, we're not going to give you the data that you asked for by the deadline. And how tense those conversations really are. Because Craig Reedy is shipping a lot of flack over the last 24, 48 hours. Travis Teigard has come down hard on him. And he is an easy person to blame. And maybe it is his fault. I would like to see kind of the, the inner workings, though, as I say, in terms of how hard WADA have actually pushed for this, or how troublesome Russia have been to deal with, So I suspect that is probably an
0: element of it all as well. Yeah, I mean, Russia basically ruled the world at the moment, right, so... Exactly, it's, it's easier said than done, basically, to get what you want from Russia. I, I've been turned by Russia, I'm actually just a Russian agent now.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's just like any other European country. They, they pay way better than George Soros. <laughs> Uh, back page of the mirror this morning is Pep you're the best in Europe Klopp you're the best in the world And uh, Super Ole gets the best of Luke As uh, Lukaku scores the winner Manchester United beating Newcastle at St James's Park 2-0 In the Premier League last night The back page of the Sun is Heavyweight Clash and Heavyweight Lifted So 29 years is a long time without the title They will feel the heat says Pep Guardiola And Ole's even got ROM scoring, says the sub-headline on the Manchester United match. Also on the back page of the Sun is Don't Take the Mick. Mick McCarthy is hoping Declan Rice will make up his mind soon on his international future, says Owen Couser. Uh, We're expecting a decision at some point. Uh, we are in the year 2019, so Declan Rice's ability to play for England in March is not going to happen at this point. He's missed that deadline, it seems. Uh, but March is the deadline that Mick McCarthy has set for Rice to commit to Ireland if he's going to do so. Uh, back page of the Irish Daily Star is Thunderstruck. Klopp expects quick start, <coughs> while Lukaku has the golden touch. Back page of the Mail is Heats on Klopp. Pep says 29-year wait could rattle City's rivals, while Solskjaer's super subs smash and grab. And then a couple of the UK back pages, I'll start with the Telegraph. Uh, instant impact, substitute Lukaku, scores after 38 seconds to secure Solskjaer's fourth successive victory. And uh, they leave with Marcus Rashford in the back of the Guardian. Uh, red hot, substitute Lukaku, pounces within 38 seconds and Rashford adds second to maintain Solskjaer's 100% start. Guardiola feels the pressure then is their headline on tonight's match. City manager unsure if his side can keep up with Liverpool. Um,
0: Alan Reid has texted us. Uh, sorry, has uh, tweeted us a picture of the Robbie Brady red card. It's 7-on-3. Robbie Brady decides his team can't defend with those odds and takes one for the team. I'd say it says a lot about what he thinks about his team. 7-on-3, lads. Or how valuable three
1: points are at the Burnley at the moment. Out of the relegation zone with that result last night. Take no chances whatsoever. And <laughs> Sean, Dy- Sean Dyche is a fairly risk-averse man. 7-on-3, though, I guess, is... Uh, is really sort of go- going in with like a really small bet when you've got pocket aces.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. Or, or, you know, you've got like a slightly dodgy card, you've, you've drawn your own ace because <laughs> it's the Burnley defence, so he probably knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah. I mean, it probably does say a lot about what he thinks about his team. And that's leadership. <laughs> Knowing the weakness in your own team and acting accordingly, that's, uh, that is leadership. It's wisdom. Manchester City against Liverpool is live tonight on Newstalk on Off the Ball from 7 o'clock. Nathan Murphy is going to join John Walters on commentary duty for that one. So plenty for the uh, two lads to get their teeth stuck into ahead of that one. Manchester City against Liverpool live from 8 o'clock tonight at the Etihad. Uh, that's going to be a good show this evening. Let's talk a little bit about what happened last night though. Daniel Harris is with us. Daniel, good morning to you. How are you doing? How are, you guys? are you starting to believe that Ole All is, in fact, the uh, the second coming of the Messiah?
2: Um, that I thought already, but um, he's certainly doing a really good job, and it, it echoes what we've been saying on this show for months, is not it? Jose Mourinho could not have been getting less out of the players. That...
0: We just had a little trouble with the line there, so we'll go back to Daniel in one second. But yeah, so those stats that were sh- showing up there, um, four wins from four makes him... The uh, the best debutante um, manager since Matt Busby. Oh, best debutante manager?
1: Yeah. Ah, right. Ah, well then, I, I thought it was uh, in general. No, 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 yeah, no. yeah, yeah. But yeah. yeah. so uh, his debut as Manchester United manager has been the most successful Sorry, since Matt right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, yeah. that's the start I thought it was. Um, I thought you meant, as in first-time manager, it had to be your first gig. No, because it's obviously not his first gig. <laughs> uh, good point as well. Uh, <laughs> So, at what point does he? Uh, so, the next game, Spurs, and then it becomes five. Yeah. Then it becomes greater than Matt Busby. but wins. then who? Then who's next? I don't who, know. Who's next on his list? Is Ole Solskjaer the greatest football manager of all time after they beat? Oh, Tom yeah, Hotspur? like any any
0: manager. Well, uh, I don't know. I think didn't Pep win something like ten games in a row or something in his first season. Anyway, let's go back. I think we've uh, reestablished. We have, yeah, Daniel. Um, so, as you were saying, sorry, Pep Guardiola. Sorry, uh, Jose Mourinho. Every every passing second that Ole Solskjaer Exists as the Manchester United manager throws further shade on the career of Jose Mourinho.
2: Um, I wouldn't say it throws shade on the career of Mourinho because Mourinho had an amazing career before he came to United. But it is extremely funny that he's come in and immediately changed everything by doing probably very little by speaking to people nicely by being positive um, and by allowing his players to express themselves. And in a lot of ways, he's the exact repudiation of everything that Mourinho thinks about football and everything that Mourinho stands for in life. And um, the way that Mourinho worked in the first instance worked very well because he retained that sense of mischief and that ability to bring people with him. But the kind of second half of Mourinho's career, he's totally lost that. And that's what we're seeing now with Solskjaer, who is not a pushover. He's not just someone who goes around being nice to everyone, people take advantage of him. But he understands that the best way to get the most out of people is to make them feel comfortable in whatever environment they're in. And that's, uh, that's what we see. That's what we see with pretty much all the managers that are successful.
0: What, what do we know about what Solskjaer actually thinks about football, though, in terms of how he wants the game to be played? All that kind of that philosophy stuff that most managers come and, and uh, you know, give a few exclusive interviews to a bunch of hand-selected journalists so that we all get to know, OK, that's actually what you think about the game. What does Ole Gunnar Solskjaer think about the game?
2: Well, I think he thinks he's very similar to Alex Ferguson in what he thinks and the way that he behaves. I mean, he sounds like Fergie so much of the time when he speaks, just obviously with a bit less... Fib- like he's a bit less scary than Fergie. But um, he thinks that football should be play- is a fast game, is a simple game, and should be played by happy people. And you should always look to go forward. And if you've got one, you should look to get two. I mean, that's exactly what he said. And he's made almost no missteps whatsoever in the press conferences. Like, everything that he said... He said, and you believe him because he's that kind of nice guy, but if you were writing a script for someone to make Manchester United supporters feel nice about themselves and to make the Manchester United players feel like doing their best, which is obviously very kind of them, you would prepare the script that he has delivered. So I don't think he has too complicated a football philosophy. I wouldn't wouldn't really even call it a philosophy. Uh, Football's a simple game, and being good at football doesn't really require all that much more than getting the most out of your players, picking your best blends and having everyone nice and happy and relaxed and he's got some really good attacking players and he's-
0: Yeah, he's got a um, the formation in the team that played last night. Um, I wonder if Eric Bailly hadn't been sent off would he still be playing? Is Phil Jones... A sub is Eric Bai. His first choice is is last night, and the little bit of momentary panic that Phil Jones seemed to bring to the team is that just uh, a quirk of the red card that Bai got the previous night out.
2: Um, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think we can see that Lindelof is the first choice, and uh, he probably isn't sure who the ne- who the next best centre back is because it's not really that clear. Um, I think that probably Bai and Lindelof together. Um, would not be the combination that he would go with in the first instance. I think probably if Smalling was fit, it would be him. And then Jones is probably next because, I mean, he's not more predictable than Bailly because you've got no idea what you're going to get from either of them. But he's probably a bit more solid and has a bit more experience. Uh, What you see with Phil, Phil Jones is basically the finished article now. What you see is the player that he is, whereas Bailly needs games and needs coaching. So I think that he would probably prefer Jones over Bailly, but it's, uh, it's not much of a choice, really, is it? Um, and I think that he'll try and sign a quality centre-back in the transfer window, which is uh, something that Mourinho told us he required, but he's but at the same time, undermined the confidence of the defenders and all the players that he had. And I think that one of the major differences is Solskjaer probably knows that his defence is slightly dodgy, so he defends by keeping the ball down the other end and by allowing the opposition to worry about United, whereas Mourinho's way of doing that was by packing the defence, was by packing men in front of the defence and playing in this fearful, reactive way because he didn't trust the defence. And uh, we're seeing at the moment whose way is working better. But of course, Solskjaer has played for not particularly good teams yet. So it remains to be seen how that works against a better team. But the method certainly worked for Unai Emery for half the season and his defence even worse than United's. And so um, I think it's probably the best way of playing with a good defence because if, 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 so, if, if you don't rate something in your team, then don't rely on it.
1: Mm. It definitely seems he's got the best out of this bunch of players at the moment, but it also seems he's getting the best out of his backroom team. And it seems like someone like Michael Carrick, who we could see on screen a moment ago, seems to be a lot more involved now under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer than he was under Jose. Is, is that correct?
2: Um, I'm not sure. I mean, there was a, f- a few moments in the final weeks of Mourinho where a couple of uh, set-piece routines worked out. And he was kind of enjoying the moment with, with Kieran McKenna and with Michael Carrick. And um, without kind of access to know what's going on, it's hard, to, it's hard to make sweeping statements about this kind of thing. But what I do think it is fair to say is the team and the style that we're seeing Solskja- Solskjaer play is something that Michael Carrick is going to appreciate because uh, we can see how Michael Carrick played football. He got the ball and he liked to get it forward just quick quickly the at the moment, and I think probably the players that he rates, like Martial and Rashford, are the players that we're seeing now in every game. They're fixtures. There are certain players that clearly are going to play in all the games for Solskjaer unless they're being rotated. They're not going to be dropped or left out after playing badly for five minutes. And I think we know enough about what Michael Carrick thinks about football to see that the way that the football is being played now is something more akin to how he thinks it should be played.
0: The only possible counter-argument is that Lukaku comes off the bench and scores <clears throat> so quickly last night. Is, you know, you want players to believe that they can play them their way into the team. Um, obviously, Solskjaer never managed to really play his way into the team, despite the fact that he was very capable of coming off the bench and scoring goals. So, uh, a little bit of a conundrum there?
2: Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think the thing that struck me when Lukaku came on was, uh, in that circumstance, Mourinho was sent on Fellaini. Um, But there will be plenty of games for everyone. Solskjaer was never exactly a fixture, but he still started lots and lots of games. He's famous for being a substitute because some of his most famous goals came as a substitute. But, I mean, he scored more United goals than Andy Cole did, I think. And you don't get that from coming off the bench for five or ten minutes. He he still started plenty of games. And United play a lot of games. So I think... like to me, like the one. If you're a defender, you know what the Kaku is going to do. Whereas Rashford is someone who will keep you running all game. He's quicker than Rat He's quicker than the Kaku. His hold-up play, his touch play, is better than the Kaku's. Um, he's capable of a wider variety of finishes than the Kaku. Although neither of them are exactly what you call a, um, a call reliable finishes yet. So, I think that Rashford is currently the man who's got the jersey, and it will take something significant to take it away from him because. He gives you a lot more than Lukaku um, than does. And a lot of United's best games under Mourinho came when Lukaku wasn't in the team. That doesn't mean that Lukaku doesn't have a lot of improving. He's still available, to do, still available to him, and he's got someone who can coach him to do that, at least until May. But for now, I would always have Rashford. And I think it was quite significant in the Mourinho era that when he needed a centre-forward, um, Zlatan left. So and he scored 25 goals, roughly. And so you know, he, Mourinho needed to replace 25 goals in a team that already didn't score enough. So there weren't that many strikers on the market. There was basically the two that it came down to for him were Murata and Lukaku. And uh, Aubameyang was also around. But what he did was he ended up going for Lukaku, who was a known quantity, scored goals in England before. Whereas a manager with a bit of imagination might have played Rashford at number nine from then. And although he wasn't someone you wanted to rely on to be your team's main goal scorer at that point, he'd have gone and bought a goal-scoring right winger in a number 10, one or the other or both. And that would have been the way he'd have got around it. He'd yeah. have got more goals from around the team by playing in a more attacking style with more attacking options and spreading the burden for the goal-scoring around. Solskjaer has now done that. He's getting goals from Pogba, Rashford scoring goals. He's um, got Martial, he's got Lingard. There's just a lot of goal-scorers on the pitch. So that one bloke scoring the goals isn't all that you require. And that was probably something that characterised almost all of Alex Ferguson's teams too. It was only the team that won the league in 0203 2 3 where Van Nistelrooy scored almost all the goals where you're basically reliant on one person to make sure that you won games. So um, I think that Rashford will keep playing and Lukaku will get his chances. On, he'll probably start against Reading and then he'll be out again against Tottenham. And that, that's what it'll yeah. be for Lukaku. And if he can win his place back... Has-
0: yeah, we're just having a few problems with the uh, skyline this morning, which is unfortunate because um, we've really only one more question left. Um, we might try and re-establish... It. Yeah, so we just, we'll stick with the Skype line for one more question and see if um, this makes any sense. You made the point there that Lukaku has a manager... No, Skype's gone.
1: We're going back in a sec.
0: I wonder... Um,
1: Marcus Rashford's a number nine now, is he? Are we, are, we, are we looking at his performance last night, that finish, where he still had a bit to do and say, through the middle, this guy is outstanding. Like, even in the, the first couple of moments when he kind of darted through the middle... Wasn't he always a number nine, defense? really? Well, like, that. that is... Uh, that, that's obviously the, the easy answer here. But was there not moments of brilliance that he showed, say on the flanks, where under Jose Mourinho he had these flashes
0: where you're like, under a different manager in that position, yeah, would he, he be even better than he would be centrally? So the 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 model is Thierry Henry, right? That's yeah. what like, and so Thierry Henry would pick the ball up deep, but like he would still call him your out and out striker. Mm. Yeah, like that is that is what, what we're
1: basing this off. But I guess when it comes to what makes sense from a Manchester United perspective, is it a side of a, a striker, if Lukaku ever finds form, that could be the case. I'm not, I'm not sure. I still think the jury is still out. I think he's been brilliant centrally at the moment, and I think it's definitely leaning, as Daniel says,
0: that way, that he is a number nine. One last question for you, Daniel. We've re-established contact there. Uh, so you were talking about um, Lukaku having somebody who can coach him up for the next six months. What, what does Ole Gunnar Solskjaer have to do before the ownership decides, actually, you know what, you can, you can stick around because you're exactly what we need here?
2: Um, well, it's a really difficult situation. He has to do more than beat the rubbish teams that United should be beating anyway, for sure. If he manages to beat PSG, if he manages to finish in the top four, like let's say those two things, then there definitely will be a question to answer. What I wouldn't be surprised happening is if he were to do a good job he might not necessarily get the manager's job, but maybe he'll get the director of football job or some kind of technical director job because I don't think United will just want to throw him away. And the question will always remain is what happens if he happens to be a really good manager? And it's not just the bounce. It's not just not being Jose Mourinho. It's not just making everyone feel nice in that kind of Carlo Ancelotti way. But actually, what happens if he's really good at this? And um, I think we'll see that. It won't, it won't... I wouldn't give him the job if he... I wouldn't say fluke the Champions League like Di Matteo because when you win something it's never a fluke. But Di Matteo managed to win the Champions League in a very particular way where he had Mourinho's team who knew how to defend, who knew how to protect the league and they kind of managed to do it by defending very deep against Barcelona and Bayern Munich and and getting away with it. And they won the, the Champions League that they would say they should have won years ago. I'd say that's probably correct. So. But if United were to progress in the Champions League, actually playing good football, and you were to see improvement in the players for some coaching and some improvement in the way that they behave tactically, and they were to finish in the top four, then he would definitely have a pretty decent claim on the job because, I mean, when you look at, some, when you look at who the other people might be, um, he could, it's possible that he could do some, some stuff that Maurizio Pochettino has done, hasn't done. I mean, he would be the favourite, I guess, if, let's say, Max Allegri wants the job, it would be kind of hard to give it to Solskjaer above someone who's done as much as Max Allegri has. But at the same time, if he does an amazing job and does some impressive things, you would definitely want to keep him around at the very least. But it's dangerous because United can't afford another bad appointment.
0: Yeah, I mean, I see the, the merits of like um, giving him an opportunity and not spending 20-odd million on trying to get Pochettino in just a transfer fee to help one of your main rivals in English football next season, to just immediately make them a better team. I mean, I know obviously you weaken them by taking away their manager, and so that's a kind of like you're assuming that they won't be able to get a, a, as good a replacement for them. But there's definitely a reason to give Solskjaer if, if he does well. And I, I also think that maybe assuming that or um, putting the proviso that he has to be PSG, that might be too much. If, if this team qualifies for the Champions League by finishing third or fourth, and they play good football for the rest of the season, getting knocked out by PSG, who have Mbappe and Neymar, might, might not also be a disqualifying factor.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair. I think but what you will need to see is you'll need to see, beat, you need to see United beating some proper teams. Yeah, It's not simply a matter of beating the teams that talent tells you they should beat almost every time, which they weren't doing under Mourinho, and that's what we've seen so far. If they were to beat Manchester City, if they were to beat Liverpool, if they were to beat Spurs, win some of those games, and finish in the top four, then you're starting to make a, then you're starting to make a decent case. If they finish in the top four because Chelsea drop off and it looks like that's what's happening at the moment, they're regressing to the mean. If Chelsea drop off, United beat everyone that they should beat home and away and don't get results in the big games, that's probably not enough. It might be enough to keep Solskjaer around because why would you not want someone like that around? but i don't think that you could say made an unarguable case to be manager just by finishing in the top 4 if it didn't include some pretty big results in it and you're right they don't necessarily have to beat psg if they don't beat, if they don't sign a, a center back who's good in the window then they've got very little chance of beating psg but they need to show that he need they need to show he needs to show that he's able to get get proper results out of his players in crucial games not just get good performances out of his players in the games that you'd expect United to win on talent, alone, with or without him, really, that any manager, almost, you'd expect United to beat Bournemouth at home, Newcastle away, and and what, what he's done so far.
0: Yeah, I mean, the best case scenario here is that he does really well, decides that the director football job is the one that he wants, uh, is involved in appointing the new manager, runs the transfer policy for the next while, and then at some point, if the next manager doesn't really work, you at least have somebody in-house immediately who will always be the permanent manager-in-waiting, if needs to be, or caretaker-manager.
2: Yeah, I mean, you see how, how some other clubs do it, where they have lots of ex-players involved, and Sometimes you hear the ex United players on television and think, seems strange that all this expertise and all this know how has just been allowed to, to go to waste, effectively, to be wasted on television. And um, you've got someone like Solskjaer, who played for Alex Ferguson for all those years. So he knows what it takes to win. He knows, he, he'll have observed what good management is and how it's done. And it's not simply a matter of someone who's good at football. So you've got the kind of the first era of Fergie managers, Mark Hughes, Steve Bruce, Brian Robson, who've had varying degrees of success but, and varying degrees of failure at various levels of football. But someone like Solskjaer, who was around for a bit longer than they were, so he's seen the game change and evolve, and seen how Fergie changed and evolved. That's a lot of expertise to allow to leave the club. So you would want that kind of thing around anyway. And I mean, it works, works quite nicely for Ajax, particularly working really well for them at the moment um it's worked for Bayern Munich also where you have people who understand and this whole kind of thing about he gets the club and I mean it's a lot of guff really because football and football clubs are very simple and all quite similar to one another but just those very simple values about understanding the kind of football that people want to watch the kind of football that people should be played so they should be played and the ability to judge what a good player is what the mentality of a good player is that kind of expertise and that kind of groundedness shouldn't be lost so I think that it's good that they got Solskjaer was the perfect choice really for this kind of interim period and um, it would be good to keep him around in the same way that I doubt there'll be many complaints if various other figures from United's past came back the ones that people feel have expertise and are good communicators.
1: Yeah, and, and to be fair, we can't actually make a, a real judgment on how successful the Solskjaer era is just yet. It'll probably be in February and March when they have those crucial games against PSG and Arsenal, Liverpool and Manchester City. But there is a sense that this is sort of reminiscent of what Zidane did at Real Madrid in terms of being a, a fantastic, fantastic player-manager, that this seems to be the way forward for football clubs now. If you're in a bit of trouble, get in a manager who's going to steady the ship in terms of a, a, a personal level. But it might actually be more than a steady the ship job, that this is actually the future of football, that man management, as a manager, is the thing to, to be good at. That is your number one priority. And let your backroom team, let your head coaches, that's a separate role, take charge of tactics and all that sort of stuff.
2: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. But I mean, I think in some, in some ways, it sounds a ludicrous thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, but quite suspicious of Zidane, in that under him, Madrid obviously did amazingly in the Champions League, but they didn't do very much in the league. And you wonder, actually, if it wasn't Ronaldo and Ramos running that dressing room. And he had Modric and he had Kroos and he had all these players who were already there. So you wonder exactly what he did. But perhaps that's exactly the point that you're making. and What you said in the second half of that question is that um, players these days are, are just able to manage themselves to a significant degree. And I think that is what a lot of managers want. Is they want... Players taking charge of things in the changing room, and there'll be leadership groups in the changing room, and perhaps that managers are just facilitators. I think there's also perhaps a particular aspect to that Real Madrid squad because they were a team, a squad of stars, so they didn't need so much gelling together because they already had two players, three players in the field. You could control the game had one of the greatest players we've ever seen, Cristiano Ronaldo, and they had a commanding centre-back, so you could allow them to get on with it. I think with someone like Solskjaer, you're going to need a little bit more than that because you don't have players that good in every position. But I agree that management, particularly at the top level, is important because you need to make people feel nice. And as I said earlier on, football is a simple game, but at the same time, you look at other managers who are doing really well. You look at Klopp, you look at Guardiola, you look at Pochettino, and they're doing, they're doing a lot of coaching. Yeah. They're improving the players that they've got, and they're also having them operate in fairly well-defined systems. I don't think it's essential that that is the case, because there's lots of different ways to play football, but I wouldn't say that the most important, or the only element that you'd want from someone is kind of a bit of inspiration in what they've done before and some management, which are kind of do things that work together obviously because if Sedan says well played then yeah. if you're a player you feel quite good about that yeah. I'm sure. Of course. Um, but there are there are, like there are other managers that are doing really well that are probably really good coaches and who have a bit more structure to the way their there's a bit more structure to the way their teams go about things. But there's lots of different ways to play football and I guess that's one of the reasons why football has conquered the world because all the all the ways of playing it are different, all of them are valid. And I, none of them particularly, I don't think, go out of date if you've got the players to execute them.
0: Daniel, great stuff this morning. Thanks, much, uh, thanks very much for joining us, Stephen. See you again, man. Daniel Harris there giving us some thoughts on the Ole Solstar situation at Manchester United. Loads of comments coming through on those, and we'll get to them as well. A reminder that that game tonight, Manchester City against Liverpool, is live on Off the Ball. John Walters is joining Nathan Murphy on commentary for that one. The uh,
1: time around St. Patrick's Day is always like the sort of Bumper uh, sporting weekend slash week of the year because you'll have a massive Six Nations game, you'll have Cheltenham uh, and on next St. Patrick's Day we'll have uh, Manchester United versus Manchester City which may not be in the grand scheme of things in terms of the way the Premier League table will look, be an overly significant match-up, it'll be for their own separate quest probably quite significant But it will be very, very significant in terms of gauging just how successful the oligona Solskjaer period is because they'll have had the doubleheader against PSG done at that point, they'll have played Liverpool and they have played Arsenal as
0: well. So uh, come Paddy's day, we'll know exactly where Solskjaer is at. And that's fair enough, yeah. So uh, tonight's game, big, big game. Nathan was um, sick yesterday, but was well enough to uh, talk to Dave to preview the game that he's going to tonight to do commentary for. Here's uh, their preview of Liverpool against Manchester Manchester City at the Etihad. Have a look.
3: In fact, when you look at Liverpool against the better teams in general over the last 18 months, it's when they're at their attacking best. There's no question about that because there's generally space left in behind. I do think, though, that a midfield of Fernandinho Silva and De Bruyne keeps the ball so well that they make it quite difficult for Liverpool to impose their style of football on them. I don't know if it's a must-win for City. I think it's a must-not-lose because you look at the fixtures that Liverpool have coming up over the next five, six weeks. Liverpool haven't dropped points against any team outside the top six all season they've got a good run of fixtures until they play Manchester United at the end of next month all the teams are playing are games you'd expect them to win they haven't lost at Anfield in well over 18 months heading for two years you'd expect them to keep up that sort of form at home so this is a chance that I'd just be so intrigued to see how Jurgen Klopp approaches this whether he realizes now is the time that they can wrap their arms right around the neck and smother the life of Manchester City because I do think if they win this barring the most calamitous collapse we've ever seen, more calamitous than Newcastle that this is done and dusted because Liverpool will just keep kicking on against those lesser teams and City have a tough run over the next month or so, they've got Chelsea, they've got Arsenal to come, I know, at home but I still think that that like that's the interesting point, if Liverpool go for this, do they go out and think this is a chance of a lifetime, worst case scenario we lose we're still 4 points clear and a good run of fixtures to come or do they think actually 10 points clear let's relax lads
0: yeah, let's go for it. Let's kill them. That's uh, I think that's what club is going to be telling them tonight in the dressing room beforehand. Just a reminder, this Sunday is the 6th of January. It is not like the morning To celebrate and to help kick off our 20 by 20 coverage for 2019, there's an all-female off the ball. Uh, Kleena Foley and Maurice and will be presenting from 1 o'clock. A feature interview with the Irish hockey star Aisha McFarren. Amazing backstory um, that Aisha McFarren has that... Um, uh, will emerge in that interview with Kleena, and And uh, if you do nothing this weekend other than tune in for just that interview, it's worth making time for. Uh, we're also going to be looking back at the 2013 Grand Slam with Neve Briggs, Jenny Murphy and Fiona Coughlin. We'll also have athletics, basketball and NFL across the show, so make sure you tune in this Sunday, not like them on to Off The Ball. Uh, Darren is with us um, to talk to us about some of the main stories from this morning. Before we get there, though, Darren, I just want to talk about some of the comments that we've been... Um, uh, attracting from people listening this morning on the hashtag OTBAM, that um, seven on three, uh, Robbie Brady one comes back up. Uh, do you think Manchester United are going to sign a centre back this January? What like uh, if if things have gone so well so far, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has an opportunity to spend some money, right? Is this more important for his own personal career, getting somebody good, being able to show that like you understand the vagaries of the transfer market, you can work with the scouts that are already there. Like, is that his role at Man United next? Well, does he, has he had time to
1: do that? Has he had time to get himself into a position where he's thinking about the market? Or would it be construed as an Edward
0: Woodward signing? Well, you presume the scouting department of Manchester United was not appointed by Jose Mourinho. That, like, there's a, there's a massive scouting department. Sure.
4: Was that not one of Mourinho's main gripes? Was that... Retention and recruitment wasn't all down to him that it was it wasn't a committee but it was very much so he would give the targets he wanted but it didn't guarantee that those targets would align with what Woodward wanted so I don't think I think the days of the manager controlling all seeing all knowing are probably a thing of the past when managers are changing so frequently there's no point in giving someone
0: complete control of the reins uh, when when was the last time Liverpool bottled it though? 2013-2014 We were only three ahead of City With three to go So not the bottle job It's made out Literally We said that earlier on I mean, Jamie Carragher said as much In the, in the newspaper Yeah as but one. I disagree It's a bottle job we
1: Was three Crystal ahead.
4: Palace Not a bottle job? 3-0 yeah. up
0: Draw 3-3 three, 3-1 three. Three wasn't it? No 3-0 th- up Was it 3-0? Was it yeah. yeah I thought 3-1 No 3-0 up
5: Oh what
4: uh, And Brendan Rodgers said afterwards That 3-0 is a hard lead to defend
0: <laughs> The slip and And the Crystal Palace. They, they are spectacular moments.
1: They are spectacular moments, but they were four, four points behind at this stage of the season.
0: Yeah, but come on, that's nothing. It's like like three up with three to go. You can't blow that.
4: I don't think the slip is a bottle job. I think the slip is ah, just really, really unfortunate. It's, it's precise,
0: that's exactly you overextend, it's choking, it's the. Uh, uh,
5: uh, blah.
4: I Tony Fulis outsmarting them was a the bottle job at three 0 down.
0: That's <laughs> because Poulos actually yeah.
1: just such a troll in, in human form. Did he win manager of the year that year? Oh, did he? I hope that. I hope that was the case. God, that like it's it, it's just hilarious. It, it's it, it's hilarious little moments in that season, rather than sort of oh my god, look at them choking and choking
0: themselves to, to death. Uh, Liverpool are not going to crack eleven points ahead in the league with not many games left, with only one big Man City game and the next couple of fixtures before the City game are likely going to win. Hashtag OTBM. I don't know which table Michael Murphy is actually looking at from that one, but uh, thanks for that. Uh, Weltonman, how are you doing? Or is it Weltonman. Is that the correct pronunciation? Yeah, you nailed it. Uh, Man United has beaten the teams that are currently 20th, 17th, 15th and 12th on the table. Seems that even Mourinho, with Mourinho United would have won these games. Hashtag OTBM. I'm not sure if, um, I don't think that Paul Popper would have been the figure that he was in those games.
1: Like, what would have happened is Neil Warnock would have ended Jose Mourinho's career. It was one of those games that they would have slipped in and then that would have been the final straw. And that Cardiff game just looked perfectly poised for, kind of like Tony Pulis cackling at Liverpool that time, Neil Warnock standing over the corpse of Jose Mourinho laughing at him, (laughs) thinking, look at the end of your Manchester United career. That's how I actually envisaged it going down, but unfortunately didn't get that far.
0: They finished at 11th. He won manager of the year. Good man. Uh, Darren O'Ducona says... I'm a rugby fan mostly and have been turned off soccer over the last few years, but Liverpool and now Manchester United play football that sports fans can watch. Breath of fresh air to Jose. Hashtag O T B A M. And Jonathan Ruddy says, My favourite rivalry and one that I'm really looking forward to this year is Donegal against Tyrone. Two improving teams with a lot of history. Um, yeah. Yeah. Really looking forward to that. <laughs> we meant. I, I agree with him. It's, it's like it is
1: a... It's it's certainly a hipster's choice there, Donegal versus Tyrone. Yeah,
0: uh, no, <laughs> it's the hardcore, old school traditionalists. You got great mo- moments like you um, got great N- moments like, Niall Morgan
1: in Buffet and things like that. Yeah. exactly. So yeah, yeah okay. I, I I'm, I'm on his side there.
0: Yeah, uh, you know they played a couple. Of, they played three or four great games in, the, in a row around the, the. They played every year under McGinnis, didn't they? Yeah, basically. And, do, well, do, there's do, do there's an argument that, Well, there's an argument that monaghan Donegal
1: was actually a better rivalry during the McGuinness era than tyrone Donegal was. Because Monaghan won a few of those games? Yeah, they did. They claimed two Ulster titles, I want to say. I'm sure I'll be corrected on that. 2013 and 14, maybe, or
0: 14-15. Um, McGuinness was gone by 15. We were actually looking for individual rivalries, though. So, um, uh, you know, the sense is Sexton versus Carberry now a rivalry in the way that O'Gara versus Sexton was, and that Humphreys versus O'Gara was, and that... You know, Tony Ward versus Ali Campbell was. um. Uh, uh, GA rivalries?
1: Well, Carberry Carberry versus Sexton. Well, it's early days. It is early days. It might get to that stage. I do feel that they're just a little bit too far apart in their career arcs for it to be on the level of Raj and Sexton. They were proper competitors, whereas now there's a clear kind of uh, depth chart that uh, Carberry is the number two out half in Ireland and Sexton is number one, and that is not going to change for the foreseeable future will it get to a point where Sexton is so bloody good at the age of 34, 35 and Carby's like now's my time and it turns into a rivalry like that then you get something like Roger versus Sexton
0: Sexton is 33 now so <laughs> <laughs> that is like one year from now oh
1: you do you do, you it's do now. Yeah. yeah like a fine line what, what, what year does his contract expire like 2-3 years time as well the end of the line 21 lines, was it end of the line 21 yeah. yeah so like it, it, when he's looking for that new contract that year Not only will he be looking for a new contract, he'll be looking to hold on to the number 10 jersey for Ireland. That's when we can have that conversation. She's already got a new contract, Owen. He works here now. (laughs) Well, very, very good point. Uh, Stop talking about my colleague like that.
4: (laughs) The big game tonight, the focus. Liverpool hoping to torpedo Manchester City's hopes of retaining their Premier League title tonight. The sides beat at the Etihad Stadium where a win for the Merseysiders would move them ten clear of their hosts and nine ahead of second place Tottenham. Liverpool have just one win in their last nine visits to the Etihad Stadium in the Premier League. They've drawn three, lost five. They've conceded 20 goals in those nine away matches to City. But Jurgen Klopp is Pep Guardiola's boogeyman. He's lost more matches against the German, seven matches in total, than any other manager is in in his entire managerial career The outcome could be a defining moment In the Premier League's title race Liverpool topped the table by seven points Going into the new year, the Christmas break No team has ever failed to win the English top flight From that position of safety at this point of the season Ooh. We can hear from both managers now Here's Jurgen Klopp in a moment But first Pep Guardiola
5: At least let us think, you know that maybe we can win. Let us come here and have the opportunity to enjoy and say, oh, maybe we can, in front of our fans, sold out to enjoy the game and win. Would I say they're the best team in the world if nobody would ask me? No. So, but we talk about it. So we talk about the, the, the thing. It sounds like we have to go there and, and, and we are the more likely to win the game than they. It's just not true. Last season we beat them 5 0 here, but doesn't count. I know that. Uh, so I know. So it's Liverpool, my friends. So, is United the best team in, in, in England, in all history? So, of course, it can beat us, yeah, but also we can beat them.
6: A couple of weeks ago, we were um, a point or what, in behind, and if you lose it, then there's four points. Can you close that gap during the season? And It's all only talk. It's
5: nothing. It's, it's nothing to do with the reality. It's just talk.
0: Who was Garth Crook's interview when Amy Dunphy said that's the first time you've seen two men in sex on the BBC? Sven Goren Eriksson, wasn't it? Did you it's the first time you've seen two men having sex wearing clothes on the BBC? Was uh, the it's just time? two
4: men having sex on the BBC, I think. All oh, right,
0: okay. Well, this is the first time you've seen two men doing that to each other in public.
4: In different rooms, in different cities, in different
0: days. It's remarkable. It's
4: quite impressive. Um, We'll have live coverage on that game on Off the Ball tonight. You can join Nathan Murphy alongside John Walters. Action begins at 8 o'clock. Manchester United's winning streak under caretaker boss Ole Gunnar Solskjaer continued last night. Romelu Lukaku and Marcus Rashford got the goals in a 2-0 victory at Newcastle. The Red Devils now within three points of fifth place Arsenal in the Premier League table. Chelsea missed the chance to strengthen their grip in the top four. They laboured to a 0-0 draw at home to Southampton. Shane Duffy scored for Brighton but it was in vain as they drew 2-2 to West Ham after squandering a 2-0 lead Marco Arnautovic got both goals for the Hammers Crystal Palace moved six clear of the relegation zone with a 2-0 win away to Wolves Bournemouth and Watford played out a 3-3 draw at the Vitality Stadium an eventful night for Republic of Ireland winger Robbie Brady as you've discussed lads the Dubliner made his return from injury as a second half sub for Burnley but he was sent off late on in a 2-1 win away to Huddersfield. Failed. Somebody
0: said it was showing impressive pace to get back to do it. Did it? I mean, yeah, it, has it come to the point where we're like, ooh, there's a great red card. <laughs> <laughs> wow, look how great Irish football is. That's he busted the to get there and chop that
4: lad best down. That's the red card
0: I've seen all season. Yeah, I, he did show good pace. Really? Fair play. So it's, it's, it's looking up for Ireland. He'll be well-rested by the time our next internationals come around in March, you know?
4: He's had a rough time of it, hasn't he? for Robbie. Yeah. Um, Brian O'Driscoll believes Johnny Sexton's attitude towards referees is more of a hindrance than a help to Leinster at the moment. The Ireland legend feels the out-half's antagonistic nature is not helping his relationship with the men in the middle though Driscoll's highlighted a series of exchanges that the Leinster captain had with referee Frank Murphy in their defeat to Munster last weekend. He feels his former teammate could learn from Captain Rory Best's approach in speaking to officials.
5: Yeah, I, I think from a captaincy perspective you, you look Johnny is an antagonistic quite... Type person he always has been and he's fiery and that's what makes him deliver time and time again because he gets that out of himself i don't know if it's always it always comes across well and it comes across as convers- uh, as confrontational rather than conversational and that's where the likes of a rory best comes into his own where irrespective of how irked he feels that you never really know how put out he is only he's the only one that knows he deals with it extreme extremely well when he's disappointed he parks it and off he goes whereas Johnny has a bit more of a heightened appetite for for conflict um and so you know when he's trying to get his point across particularly with a baying crowd you know jeering and getting into Frank Murphy's head it you know you're um, you're fighting, the, you know, fighting the, the cause at times and um, yeah it, it wasn't I think that side of his uh, of, of the captaincy because you're the guy that's trying to lead from the front it does filter down to the rest of the team and has a knock-on sometimes a negative knock-on connotation
0: I mean I kind of like having a confidential captain <laughs> is that a bad thing? yeah like,
4: it's, no it's like know? it's great because a, a cranky player like nice guys finish last you need someone who will just go out there and do anything and say anything and doesn't care
0: what people think. There's definitely part of me that thinks that um, the best, like obviously that's what referees expect is Roy Best, right? But there were times when that New Zealand game when they took the head off Henshaw and they should have had a couple of red cards in that game, that, that, that didn't work because those referees had been... Yeah, you know, warming up with the All Blacks. And we're like, oh, my God, I'm, this is the All Blacks. So this is great. Oh, those All Blacks, they're so strong. Which was basically the attitude of the referee that day. And sometimes you want them to be going... Like, ah, ah, ah. No? I mean, yeah, I, like,
1: like, like, it's, it's each little example on its own. Like, did
0: Leinster suffer because of Johnny Sexton's behaviour the last night? I don't think so. Well, I think that if you're blaming Johnny Sexton for what Fardy does and for what James Lowe does, I don't... I like. They have to take personal responsibility for that. Right? Yeah, that, that, that would be my opinion Friday's late as well. tackle is Friday's late tackle. James Lowe doesn't go up and bring down uh, Conway when that's what he's supposed to do. Like, and those are the two key things, really.
1: I would, I would say that Friday's with a tackle, with uh maybe with a referee who's less understanding towards the character of Johnny Sexton, he could be in a, bother, a bit of bother. I don't think in the context of the last night. They'll have a chat with him, though, won't they? Uh, you would think so and he might calm himself down maybe and, and pull himself down. Like I, I think what Brian is saying there it's kind of more of a it's almost a warning of what could happen with this sort of behaviour rather than what we have seen already. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But that's what
4: I think it is. Johnny Sexton just acts like an adult in these situations. Like sometimes you see rugby referees and it's almost like they're condescending in the way that they yeah. talk down the players. Sir. Yeah, Sexton acts like he's in a high pressure environment trying to do uh, what he needs to do in a higher pressure environment to help his team and that is have a honest and frank dialogue with referees
1: (laughs) should um, because of the the kind of load on the the minds of a number 10 in rugby I wonder is it always the best idea that a number 10 is captain like I mean in general is the fact that Rory Best has got I guess from kind of a point to point process he's got less to worry about than an out half does like Johnny Sexton say penalties given to Leinster at at that point and he wants to have a word with the referee but he's also got to decide about where this ball is going is it too much to think about? I wonder, is that kind of part of what O'Driscoll is saying there as well? That the best of Johnny Sexton could be made without the burden of being captain? Maybe,
0: I don't know. Like, Part of you thinks that that position is actually, you get a good view of what's going on in front of you, you get a good view of what's going on behind you. If you're in the second row and you get your head up somebody's arse... Yeah, that's true, true it, as well. Like, I don't know. Or maybe it should be somebody in the back row who's kind of having a sneak peek around. Like, I think it's down to building relationships with referees to the point where you can go... Come on. And he's doing it by way of sheer force of personality as opposed to the softly, softly. Like the, I know you don't like me, but you have to listen to me
1: Line That was Wayne Barnes, right? Uh, that was Barnes, yeah. Yeah, like that's, that's great. That's, that, that's great confrontation. That's exactly how being a confrontational captain benefits your team. But I can also see how it could let you down as well at times. It all just comes down to who, uh, who the man in black is, like who is that person that you're speaking to, and how do you deal with that person? because they are they're interesting characters be referees, and um,
0: they are. yeah they are. It's like, a particular strain of individual who uh, ends up you know I'll, I'll be the boss of these alpha males. I'll show them what to do. I'll blow my whistle, and they'll all act. It's weird, though, because I don't think
4: being the, the captain actually affects what he does to his teammates. He'll still bark orders and shout at yeah. his teammates, no matter captain or not. It's probably taking him away from the ability to bark orders and shout at referees might be the best thing for him.
0: Yeah, still horse-collar his uh, younger international colleagues away from... Uh the scenes of fights so they don't get themselves in any trouble yeah that's he, what was happening he was just, just protecting uh, poor, poor uh, Joey there um, so Noel Cow was in touch to ask him well it wasn't a ball job come on it wasn't a ball job the last time and now he's in, in touch again saying for what it's worth I think Liverpool will not win the league in fact they will not pressure will be too much he's saying well he, he, did, all, he did also point out that the Crystal Palace game had no
1: bearing on whether or not Liverpool were going to win the, li- the title that season of course it did. did how many points did they finish behind
4: yeah, but three points, momentum. That came before the uh, slip.
1: No, it didn't. It did. It didn't.
0: Pretty sure it did, yeah? Yeah,
1: it did. It is? Yeah. Oh my God, I've, I've got this all uh, I've got this arseways. Yeah. I've, uh, the way I remember that season, it, like, I, I wish I could blame it on it being 20 years ago, but it was literally <laughs> uh, four years ago. Five years ago, really.
4: In the golf, Rory McIlroy begins his 2019 season tonight. The four-time major winner among the late starters at the Tournament of Champions in Hawaii. The Ulsterman tees off around 10 Irish time. Several new rule changes being implemented to improve the general pace of play at all levels of the game and McIlroy is embracing the change. They're trying to simplify the rules, which I think is a great thing for the game. I, I've always said that the rules of golf are way too complicated, especially after the debacles and the forces we've had at, U.S. Opens and all sorts of stuff over the last few years. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy that they made the decision to try and simplify them and, and just try to make everything a little bit easier to understand. Finally, the leaders of 16 national anti-doping agencies have called on WADA to suspend Russia from international competition. The Russian Federation has once again failed to comply with the conditions of the controversial deal to reinstate the nation. Sport Ireland, among the bodies, urging WADA to act after the Russians missed the deadline to hand over data from its anti-doping lab in Moscow. Last September, WADA lifted the suspension on Russia going back to November 2015. One of the conditions of that reinstatement was to allow independent access to the raw data held at the Moscow lab that coordinated and controlled the state-sponsored doping programme. Sport Ireland Chief Executive John Tracy says, as has been the case from the outset of this ordeal, there has been a continual shift of the goalposts in relation to the reinstatement of Russia's compliance.
1: I have a point of information. Uh, April, uh, 27th of April, 2014, Liverpool nil, Chelsea 2. May, 2014, Crystal Palace 3, Liverpool 3. The slip was before the Palace game. Thank you very much. I'll take your apologies. I'm sorry.
4: No, I'm sorry. I always thought the slip, the slip was after.
1: So, no, I'm just here defending Noel Cahill. <laughs> but, so Crystal Palace does have a massive bearing? No, as in the slip end of the title. If they'd beaten Crystal Palace, they still wouldn't have won the Premier League. Oh. Yeah, but one is a failure of
4: one player to keep his footing. The other is a failure of 11 players to defend. the
1: uh, 3 but, but ultimately, they were,
0: they were it wasn't a bottle job because there was no, there was no title to be had. Uh, okay, um, thank you very much, Darren. We're going to talk with Mike Carlson about the wildcard weekend in the NFL and the Antonio Brown situation at the Steelers. But first, some more Brian, I'll just for you. Here he is talking about Leinster's indiscipline against Munster.
5: The Leinster indiscipline, I think you can look at it a few different ways. Um, penalty count is one thing, um, and then the sin bins and, and red cards is another thing. I think they'll be very disappointed with how many penalties they gave away. Um, I think... Frank Murphy, for the most part, had a pretty good game. Um, he didn't get everything right, but I think he, he had a solid performance considering, you know, the, the cauldron that was Thomond Park that, that day. Um, and I think um, the Leinster uh, indiscretions were punished accordingly. Possibly could have seen a red card for Tig Furlong. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more. Yeah, we're going but to I go through each of the th- decisions. Th- I think, in a moment, I think Frank Murphy got nearly all of them right. Mm, probably. Connor Murray should have gone to the minute as well. But, but as a
4: 40-minute spell, taken in isolation, have you ever seen a more ill-disciplined performance from a Leinster team?
5: Not for a long time. Um, it's kind it, it of them talking about not getting pushed around down there and not getting bullied, and it's almost as if they... they individually, they lost the rag a couple of times. Like the, I think if you look at the Keane Healy, that's a sloppy one. The Fardy you know, is potentially sloppy mm-hmm. as well. I don't think there's... I don't think they're malicious. Um, I think they're badly timed, as much as the Murray one is badly timed. So I, I don't think it's, it's an intent to go out and maim, but I just think they, they, their timing was off. And, um, and as a result, they, they had to pick up the yellow cards and, and the red card that they did pick up.
0: Yeah, more uh, from Brian on all of our channels. You can go to youtube.com forward slash... Off the ball and get a full Wednesday night rugby, or of course, you can subscribe to our rugby podcast strand uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Off the ball.com forward slash podcast is probably the easiest way for you. You can get your RSS feed there for whatever uh, it is that you use. Now, let's move on to the NFL. It's wild card weekend. It's an amazing weekend, really. If you've only decided to start watching games uh, in the NFL like Owen has in the last uh, couple of weeks, then not a bad time to get back into it. But I'm delighted to say Mike Carlson is with us this morning. Mike, how are you doing?
6: I'm fine. I've gotten back into it. I watched that match at Thoman Park on Saturday. It was a good one. Uh, but I, I woke up this morning to find out that Mean Gene Okerlund died last night. Uh, so a, a moment of silence for Mean Gene, uh, the famous, the WWF uh, interviewer, ringside interviewer, and, and announcer, and all. He was he was a master of what at what he did.
0: And so, uh, what was so special about what Mean Gene was able to do?
6: Oh you know when you're interviewing professional wrestlers at rate right, you have to be you have to be able to do that kind of uh, faux double take at all the uh, extraordinary things they say and at the same time uh, at the same time big up the the ones that are supposed to be bigged up and he he was just very good at it. Uh, I watched in tribute I watched this wonderful YouTube clip of Don Morocco and Mr. Fuji doing stand up comedy on the late night talk show gene oakland hosted for wwf for a very very short time uh, and, and it's hugely funny
0: uh, 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 one of the other stories that we wanted to talk to you about before the um wildcard weekend was what's going on with the pittsburgh steelers um, jesse, <laughs> jesse james described it as um, there's always it's like the kardashians there's always something going on he's the tight end who might be on right. his way out um, yeah and it is a soap opera
6: it is it is a soap opera. Kardashian Kardashians is pretty good. Um, it, it's like half half football and half circus. Um, a lot of a lot. Of, what it is is Antonio Brown uh, got into a fight with Ben Roethlisberger, the quarterback, um, during the week uh, before the final before the final game against Cincinnati, and wound up throwing a ball either at him or at his feet because he said that Roethlisberger couldn't get the ball to him and kept throwing balls at his feet uh, and. They, um, they got into it and then he stormed off and didn't go to practice the next couple of days, didn't go to team meetings on Saturday and showed up for the game as if he were going to play. Mike Tomlin didn't let him play. Pittsburgh won the game anyway. So, um, in the end, that was, that was inconsequential, although it was a very close game with a bad Cincinnati team. They didn't get in the playoffs. And what you're getting now is a combination of, The Steelers' in discipline and Mike Tomlin, known as a sort of "quote-unquote" players' coach, uh, who lets the guys go. They're a tough team that that's kind of freewheeling. Antonio Brown's ego, which after this incident, many people, including his his ex teammate Ryan Clark, who's now a commentator, were talking about various incidents um, you know over the years where he puts himself ahead of the team. And then, of course, this weird situation. We're coming into the season. Pittsburgh were a Super Bowl favorite, in a lot of people's minds, including my own, because they had the killer bees, Ben Roethlisberger, Antonio Brown, and Le'Veon Bell, the running back. And of course, Bell never played for them. They couldn't get a contract done with him. Uh, He never stepped on the field. Brown complained. And and it seems that, that the thing that set it all off was that the players voted the team most valuable player. And gave it to Juju Smith-Schuster, who's the other receiver, um, not to Antonio Brown. And I think that's why he was feeling particularly sensitive. And now Pittsburgh's left with a huge problem because he makes so much money that they, they, any team in the league would love to have him. Uh, and, his, and his price is not unreasonable uh, in contract terms. But if Pittsburgh trade him or release him, their salary cap will take a hit of something like $26 million, which is more than 10, almost 15 percent of the cap. So they can't really afford to get rid of him. And they have to, therefore, come to some kind of accommodation to get him to play. He's a wonderful receiver. You know, I, Easily one of the five best in the league.
0: There's been a a glorious sequence of tweets that have been coming out, which we can uh, pull up now. So um, this was his Instagram post, I think it was. My options may seem limited by people or circumstances. It's then that I remind myself I am in command of my attitude. I am divinely blessed with free will. I utilize that gift, choosing to take charge of my life, to express the creativity, vitality and wholeness. That truly define me. So that was his Happy New Year message. And then um, he starts following the 49ers on Instagram. And uh, George Kittle gets involved. George Kittle's the best he tight end of football played, at the moment.
6: football looking for wholeness.
0: Yeah, it's a bit weird. That So so the, uh, Kittle goes, sup, AB84. And then Antonio Brown gets back with the emoji with the uh, two starry love hearts in his eyes. Um, and then after that, Richard Sherman gets involved too. And you're like, ooh, you know, I mean, this could be, stick him in... Um, the Kyle Shanahan offense, and let's see how it goes.
6: <laughs> yeah, and like a good soap opera, this one's going to run and run. Um, you know, I, I think I, I would tune in every week to see. And, and it's sad in a sense that Pittsburgh didn't make the playoffs because what they would do this week with Antonio Brown, were they in the playoffs, would have been the most the most fun thing to watch of all.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I half wondered if they made the playoffs, do they somehow get a deal done with Levy and Bell? I mean, I know that like technically they, but might they not can't; have, they weren't allowed yeah, I mean, to. Mean,
6: no. Yeah, they're not allowed to. Yeah, the, the the time passed for that.
0: Yeah. Okay. Is it like? Is there any sort of real
1: sort of common denominator between the Bell situation and the Antonio Brown situation? Because the way you're explaining it, there it does seem that there is very different situations going on here. But could be said that Big Ben perhaps is a problem. I mean, like he probably beat the life out of anybody in that locker room at the moment. But you he's probably bigger than he, all of them. But like, I, I do wonder if, if he is the issue.
6: That's a good. That's a good point, though. And I don't think he is. Specifically or or in the main part, but I think he's part of the problem in that um, everybody – not everybody, but Antonio Brown, I think, wants to be the star and thinks that the focus is on Ben and that Ben doesn't give him the service he requires. Um, with Le'Veon Bell, he wanted to be paid – Sort of like a quarterback, but but more specifically, he wanted to be paid both as a running back and a wide receiver because he felt that the way that the Steelers used him, often lining him up at wide receiver, justified that, so he wanted to you know so both both of the players uh, want to be rewarded and I think in bell 's case in um, brown 's case at least I think he feels he 's being held back somewhat by um, by ben, but in the, in reality, uh, yeah, Ben has been wildly inconsistent but He's got the best pair, or one of the two best pairs in the league of receivers in Schuster and Brown. So you can't give, you can't be targeting one guy all the time.
0: Yeah, is is Roethlisberger overrated at this point in his career?
6: Oh, that's a really hard one. Um, I think in the sense that he looked kind of rickety toward the end of the season at his age and the the number of hits that he's taken, probably. But but he plays that kind of playground ball that the Steelers are so good at when when the game comes toward the end and, and things break down. Um, that's when he's at his best. And when you go back and look at the Steelers' season, you know they, they lost games because Chris Boswell fell, you know, fell down on a kick, missed a kick early in the year. They lost games because Mike Tomlin made a couple of bad decisions. They lost games because Ben threw some bad passes. But basically, they were in. They should have been in the playoffs. Um, no one really would have wanted to play them. And when you come down to a close game at the end, Ben's one of those guys that you most want to have on the field.
0: Okay, let's move forward to the to wildcard weekend. Um, in, in terms of the games this weekend, there's a bit of doubt, really. I, I suspect the most doubt that people have is what's going to happen in the game between uh, Dallas and Seattle. Um, there was a sense that, uh, well, certainly the line has telescoped a bit, and people are very unsure about how good Seattle really are, and also, I think, how good Dallas is.
6: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Uh nobody can really get a handle on this. The the other the other big factor is that the Seahawks are generally speaking a different team away from home than they are at home. They they're much more um much more aggressive at home and it's much harder for an offense to play in their stadium with all the noise against that defense. So if you if you ratchet their defense down a step because they're on the road, it then makes them a little bit vulnerable and Dallas is a good enough defensive team this year to be able to, if they play the game right, contain Russell Wilson, which is probably the the key point in stopping Seattle. They're going to get their yards running, but if you can stop Russell Wilson from beating you with, with his creative play, scrambling and, and either gaining yardage on the ground or, or throwing the ball um, – they, they can, they can, um, they can beat you. And Dallas, nobody really wants to be convinced by Dallas, I think. Um, you, 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 always look at, at the flaws, but they can, they can run the ball too. And there's a lot of teams in this playoffs who are run first teams, uh, and, and depending on their defenses to carry them through. And Dallas's defense has been surprisingly good this season.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because obviously when, when you think about Dallas running the ball, you think about Ezekiel Elliott, who's been in sublime form in patches this season. Like when it comes to Seattle's run defense, is it good enough to stop him? Because it seems that if you stop Zeke, you've got a very, very good chance of beating the Cowboys.
6: Yeah, it, it, it probably is. And, that, and that's the thing. They're, they they're strong up front. Bobby Wagner's had a fantastic season at middle linebacker. Um, they don't really have a sort of Cam Chancellor figure yet. Which they need a sort of safety who can be the fourth linebacker, but McDougal's done a pretty good job for them, and their defense looks an awful lot like like it used to. I, I think Seattle's sort of a year ahead of where we thought they would be, uh, all, all told. And the real challenge for Dallas will be stopping. I think the receivers, um, you know, if they try to stop that Seattle run game, Tyler Lockett's been phenomenal for Seattle. The the past four or five weeks, uh, he's an, always a deep threat, but he's caught the balls, every ball that he's thrown. And Doug Baldwin is is Wilson's favorite receiver. And, and when Wilson starts scrambling, Baldwin's one of the best uh, ever at getting himself open, you know, and Wilson and he understand each other where they're going to go uh, when the play breaks down. So that's really the, the question for, C- for Dallas is stopping those two guys, even if, you know, even once you've once you've contained Ezekiel Elliott.
0: Mike, the the NFL um, season from this point forward is generally, um, with the exception I would suspect of the New England Patriots over the last decade or so, unbelievably unpredictable. And if you think back to this time last year, the point you are making about Dallas, you know, nobody really wants to be convinced by them. Nobody really wanted to be convinced by the Eagles this time last year. Everybody thought that <laughs> Foles had limped into the end of the season, and then all of a sudden, even within the playoffs, within that game against Atlanta, they should have lost. He throws what should be is it what should be an interception that bounces into the hands of one of the receivers. is like, okay, they get away with that. Like you think back to these moments changing the entire season. It's just, it, it's a, a proper wild weekend this weekend in.
6: I, I think so. I, I, I'm looking down the matchups, you know, for picking them. And I, I still haven't really picked the games and I'm thinking, now that's a really good matchup. You know, that's a really good matchup. That that's a fantastic matchup. And Philadelphia, Chicago is great because Chicago lost four games this season And in each of the four games, the opposition scored 24 points or more. And if they didn't, Chicago won every other game. And when you look at the Eagles, you you have to figure they can score 24 points, um, even against the Bears' defense. So that makes that one fascinating. Foles has played just like he did at the end of last season. and, And the people are starting to realize the differences between him and Carson Wentz. The main one being he gets rid of the ball a little bit quicker, gets sacked fewer times and there and goes deep downfield more often. And, and that's the way the Eagles offense works best. And to me, nobody's mentioned that I've seen, but to me, the big difference in the Eagles in the last couple of weeks, Tim Jernigan is back, who's a defensive tackle, who they picked up last season from Baltimore and played really well. And they have an older defensive line and not much depth, but when Jernigan is in there, he occupies two blockers. It takes a lot of pressure off the other guys. And all of a sudden, Michael Bennett last week and Chris Long didn't look like 35-year-old pass rushers. They looked, you know, re-energized. And that's what made them in the in the playoffs last year. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't write off this Eagles team, although I think in, in Chicago the Bears have to be, you know, legitimately favorites and and the line's not going to sway too much the way it did with seattle and and dallas
0: yeah so um, they're six points favorites i think uh certainly they were yesterday Uh, just uh, on the nick folds um carson wentz issue at what point do philadelphia legitimately think about trading carson wentz because you get a bounty of picks for carson wentz you get a a multiple number ones from a bunch of teams around the league at what point do you think okay (laughs) this is worth it
6: it would be a huge. It would be a huge risk to trade him, um, and, and a huge story. And the problem, of course, is that in the NFL, like in America in general, money talks. And Wentz is on his rookie contract, so he's a bargain at quarterback. Um, whereas Foles will be will be negotiating a new contract, which would be would be a whole lot more. And Foles can buy himself out of his contract it's a it's a two-way option the team could release him or Foles can buy his way out for a couple of million dollars and on the free agent market now Foles is going to be going for over 20 million a year so it's highly unlikely that the eagles can afford to keep him when they have when they have Wentz who even if you were to say okay I think Nick Foles is a better quarterback than Wentz which I don't think anybody is actually saying but even if you did you know is Wentz at five million dollars that much worse than Foles at 22 or whatever he would get paid, and that's going to be the, the kind of logic the Eagles follow.
1: Mike, I think it's pretty easy to make an argument against the line on this game. Like You, you talk about defense's winning game or winning championships even as the oldest cliche in American sports. But like, and, and, of course, home field advantage comes down to, to favor Chicago Bears as well. But how important is the Trubisky factor in all of this? Because you look at him and you look across at the other offence and you look at not only a quarterback who's good in the playoffs, a quarterback who astounded the world last year and going all the way to winning the Super Bowl. How big a factor is it that Mitchell Trubisky just hasn't proved himself at this level yet?
6: It's a it's a good point, and and the Bears' offense has never been convincing this year. They they're where they are because of that defense. But the defense has played so well and created so many turnovers that that they've been able to um, they've been able to win in the last four games of the season. They allowed a total of forty two points. Which if you do that, you're going to win every every game you play. And uh, Trubisky, the real worry about Trubisky will be that he'll make one or two big mistakes, and then. If he does, you don't want to have to play from from a hole. If you're the Bears, you want to play with a lead or or with a close game because um, you can let your defense you can let your defense do do the business for you. And yeah, I, I think six the Eagles and six is probably going to tempt an awful lot of people. Um, and if it went a point higher, um, I think you'd see a landslide of money falling into Vegas.
0: Um, the other massive uh, matchup this weekend is what we're going to see from the pass rush of Houston and what they're actually capable of doing because um, JJ Watt was somebody who we, we wonder if, if his career was over he's an absolute superstar a little bit slow to come back in the early part of the season just in terms of I mean the sack numbers were there but the performances everybody thought oh he's not quite the same player and then as the season has gone on it's like well JJ Watt's just as good a player now as he ever was
6: yeah, and this is this is a it's not a glamorous matchup, but it's a really great one because um Indianapolis and Houston played twice during the season and Houston won in Indy by three, Indy won in Houston by three. Um they match up well because Indianapolis protects Andrew Luck better than any team in the league, basically, partly because Luck is smart and knows how to get rid of the ball. Um so that helps to work against Houston's pass rush and Houston are not a great offensive team. They Deshaun Watson takes too many sacks himself because he kind of stands in the tries to make himself stand in the pocket and let plays develop. He only has DeAndre Hopkins as a downfield receiving target. Demarius Thomas is injured. Lamar Miller came back this last week and that makes a huge difference for them because they're another team that would really like to run the ball and play defense as their their way of winning. And interestingly the Colts defense is actually like Dallas is actually pretty good and very similar because their defensive coordinator was the linebackers coach in Dallas last year, Matt Eberflus, and the rookie Darius Leonard has just been outstanding at linebacker. Mm-hmm. Um, Dallas has the rookie Kyle Van Esch, who's also been outstanding at linebacker. So you know you've got you've got two very similar situations. They play by by swarming to the ball basically, and uh, if Russell Watson. Uh, sorry, Deshaun Watson, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson. Again, there's a lot of similarities in these playoffs. You know, if he can make a few plays with his feet,
5: ah.
1: Ah.
0: it'll be interesting to see what happens.
1: Yeah, Fine. I'm just like, it's uh, it's probably one of my favorite weeks of the sporting year. Um, there, it's it helps that there isn't a whole pile of clashing with uh, the NFL wildcard weekend. It tends to always fall on FA Cup. Uh, third round of weekends which yeah. gives you a bit more time but it's just Saturday evening also helps it, the fact that it's Saturday like we got it a couple of weeks ago once the college football season's over that's, yeah. that's, when, I, that's when my attention turns to the NFL because we finally get a bit of Saturday night action it's like uh, getting up at 5am on a Monday morning isn't exactly conducive to watching NFL but this is the weekend where you're like oh, these amazing storylines all coming to the fore, getting to watch the games in full, particularly on a Saturday night, as you say, and just sinking your teeth into somebody's matchups. It's fascinating. Um, like, he was talking about Deshaun Watson there, uh, watching a bit of him uh, on Red Zone the day before New Year's Eve kind of being sent out into the trenches. And we were just talking a bit off-air about it. You, you were saying that it's not necessarily as bad as, say, Dak Prescott being sent out there. Uh, I think we've reestablished, established uh, Mike. I just don't understand, Mike. Maybe explain yeah, to me I'm why re-est- somebody like Deshaun Watson, who obviously suffered a terrible injury last season, is being thrown out there time and time again by the Houston coaches. I think he's been sacked 62 times this year.
6: Yeah, and like I said, most of that or a good part of that is down to his waiting in the pocket, um, you know, waiting for things to develop and I don't think he's got the receivers to get open, you know, easily enough and and that that makes it hard for him. But you don't have much choice in in these games, I think, because you depend on his ability to create. He's been sacked 52 times but when he isn't sacked he makes things happen uh running the ball he's not running first the way he did when he first came into the league he's trying to protect himself that way and you remember um i think what i was saying when uh, my skype all of a sudden overheated uh from the from the frequency of my talking um Back in Week 11, we talked after that Rams Chiefs game, the 54-51 game, um, about you know is the is the NFL becoming an all-offensive league, uh, you know wild shootouts and things like that. Well, if you look at the playoffs now and, and last week, you've got. A whole bunch of teams that are defensive teams you know run first teams like Baltimore Baltimore's playing the Chargers you know which is a run first team uh, with a great defense against a a pretty wide open offensive team in the Chargers Uh, you've got the Bears there you've got Seattle there um, all of whom are you know basically kind of low low scoring teams and and the Bears when they played the Rams remember they they won that game um, what was it 15 to 6 uh they held the Rams to 6 points so that defense is for real um and i i just think this is this is a fascinating weekend and 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 it points out the way that the NFL has is unpredictable just when you think you've got it figured out uh every, everything spins around and and you know the fact that a quarter of the coaches in the league get fired every year is a good sign of that i also like your boston red sox baseball in the middle of the desk that, that's a, a fine a fine sign there you go um
0: there was one point though that like uh traditionally over the last five or six years there's been one crap team who makes it this far and they get blown out in the early game this year it looks like well the titans upset the chiefs last
1: year they were the crap team weren't they
0: Am I right in saying that, Mike? I just remember the Texans and the Bengals getting blown out in game after game on Saturday. You're like, oh, game, I can sit down Saturday evening and watch. And then 15 minutes in, you're like... Can I really justify watching this blind for yeah, the three there, hours? Not this There's year. no
6: eight and eight team in the playoffs this year for the first time in a in a while. And um and like you know, and like we said at the beginning, the Steelers could easily have been in there. So, you know, there wouldn't have been a there still wouldn't have been a crap team. Uh I, I think you're right. And these, these matchups this week show that. Um probably on paper the worst team is either Houston or Dallas or Philadelphia you know it's like take your pick there's not a bad there's not really a bad team among them.
0: Yeah the Ravens Chargers has the potential to be like a, a proper amazing game where you have this live wired genius young quarterback who is capable of running for 150 yards but he also is actually a better passer than people give him credit for against Philip Rivers who finally has the team to justify the incredible talents that he has had for his entire career. He's like reaching that point of his career where he could go on and win a Super Bowl and be considered John Elway-esque, like one of the all-time greats, or he might not fulfill his potential.
6: Yeah, um, and this seemed to be the year when things were going to go right for the Chargers. We're the kind of team where something always seems to go wrong and and get in the way. But this is a hard game for them, not least because when you come from the West Coast and you have to play the one one o'clock game, it's tough on your body. Uh, teams that do that often are slow starting because their body clocks are still set on early morning California time, um, and we, we saw that with Seattle a couple of times uh, playing Carolina and playing Atlanta in in the playoffs with very slow starts. So, um, Baltimore is is a very good defensive team at all three levels, and that's going to be the problem for the Chargers. Lamar Jackson obviously is the problem um, offense defensively for the Chargers. And, and they're a good defense, but they're a better defense pass rushing than they are. I think that's going to be the key for them again. And and you know sooner or later, someone's going to stop the run by stopping Lamar Jackson and putting him out of the game, uh, which is why in the NFL historically you don't see many quarterbacks in run-first offenses. Uh, so I kind of like the Ravens at home in this one.
0: Okay, so if you had one pick – that you were, uh, you know, uh, advising us all to put our money on. I was going to try and find a subtle way of saying that, but uh, there's no subtle way of saying it. What, what's your lock of the week?
6: I, I would say – would. i I'm going to say Baltimore, but um... – simply because i have the, mo- the most confidence in that but I-, I haven't looked at what the spread is so uh <laughs> so uh t- take it with a little grain of salt uh and I-, I worry about chicago but i i think in the end i'll probably wind up picking seattle baltimore and chicago um i kind of like the seahawks going in and i still haven't figured out indianapolis and houston um i'm kind of edging toward the colts but i haven't convinced myself yet yeah
0: fair enough mike good stuff enjoy the weekend thanks so for joining
6: us yeah. Thank you, guys. Have a happy new year.
0: You too. We'll talk to my castle again real soon after uh, this weekend. But um, definitely, if you haven't been paying attention, this is uh, the bit where the coverage gets good. There's no red zone, so it's not, um, it's not quite as exciting. It's a bit more calm. No, but... Uh, it's time to go out and get drinks. Well, the last red zone was crap as well, because all the good games
1: were later on. So uh, I've kind of weaned myself off red zone to a certain extent. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, you know putting Mike in his place when the Eagles take down Chicago uh, at the weekend. Despite the fact that you know I spent about 20 minutes actually looking at this game, and Mike's been studying both teams in close detail all year.
0: But uh, sometimes there's a bit of beginner's look when it comes to tipping matches. Uh, so you're picking the you're picking Chicago.
1: No, Eagle, the Eagles.
0: beat Chicago. Did he not? No, he, he said he said he's a little bit worried about Chicago, but he's still backing them. Yeah, he was taking the points though, so it's a close game. Yeah, no, it, it will be, it will be. But uh, I think Mike's going to be wrong on that one. Um, all right, some quick comments for you to wrap up on today's show. Um, and, of course, a reminder that the game tonight is live and off the ball. The big question is whether or not Kevin De Bruyne will start for Manchester City against Liverpool. Live commentary with Jonathan Walters and Nathan Murphy in the commentary box from the Etihad this evening. Uh, on uh, Saturday as well, uh, sorry, on Sunday, it's not like the Naman. It'll be uh, Klina Foley and Smart and Iqalik presenting from 1 o'clock. Um, it is the kickoff proper of our 20 by 20 campaign here on Off The Ball, so a feature-length interview with the Irish hockey star Aisha McFerrin, Neve Briggs, Jenny Murphy and Fiona Coughlin are going to look back on the 2013 Grand Slam and we'll also look ahead to the new season as well as athletics, basketball and NFL across Sunday's show and of course all the live updates from the FA Cup games as well. A um, few final quick ones, so we were talking yesterday about whether or not Khabib and McGregor was a fight that everybody wanted to see again. People saying they don't want to see them two fight again are just bandwagon riders of those who've already said it. Okay, yes. I, I get I get the point you're making. Yeah? As long Connor can be the old Connor again and train like he's done, it'll be a different fight and no one can say how it will go because simply no one knows. I wasn't a Connor fan until this fight, says MC on YouTube. I hate the way Khabib fights and I hate how people have become fans of his. I see Khabib as someone who's mastered a fighting loophole. Good for him. He can hold guys down and wear them out two, three rounds later, go toe-to-toe. Personally, I don't respect that. Boxing fan there? Uh, same dude. Same MC
1: dude. That's an interesting take on Khabib, actually. I thought it was just kind of real respect for what he does because it's obviously a huge part of the sport. Isn't
0: that the That's whole point? Otherwise, you're just a boxing 15%. fan.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. No. Um, that, 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 that is an interesting take. Um, like, do we want to see it again? Your point was that we definitely don't want to see it again because it's going to be so straightforward for Khabib... But the UFC obviously want to see it again because I think it'll do fairly good numbers for them.
0: It, it, it'll probably do just as well, if not more. Yeah, look, at, it, has, it has the <coughs> whole brawl thing to settle on again, which obviously they'll do, which, you know. I mean, we're talking about the lowest common denominator marketing in the world here. Like, And they will definitely use the brawl as promotional material, without yes, question. question. So I guess it's inevitable that that fight will happen. Uh, Sound Sean. We'll be the judge of that, Sean. Says on YouTube, uh, time and time again in the big games, he goes with Ginny, Hendo and Milner. Wouldn't be surprised if he does again. Hendo always does well against sides that push on. It's the low block sides he struggles with. Well, and has been doing better at that this season. I think he starts Hendo. I think he probably starts Henderson too. The, yeah,
1: well, uh, Henderson is, is probably the question mark there. There's no question, of course, around Ginny, as he puts it there. Because the, the big movement in football theory over the past couple of weeks, is that if Virgil van Dijk didn't exist, then Gini Alden would probably be Liverpool's footballer of the season so far. And uh, Sachin the Cranny's actually got a pretty good piece in The Guardian this morning talking about this, how he's uh, Liverpool's best midfield performer in a number of areas. He's completed the most passes, he's completed the most dribbles, all that sort of thing. But what's really impressive is how Jurgen Klopp identified a set of skills that Gini Wijnaldum had that weren't being utilised too well at Newcastle United. So he had 11 goals and 38 appearances from an attacking midfield position and Jurgen Klopp signed him to a few raised eyebrows. I don't think it was like, this is a ridiculous signing. I think people were like, Interesting. And Jurgen Klopp obviously saw in him a tactical astuteness and actually mentioned it at the time that Dutch midfielders tend to think about the game in a lot higher way than a lot of other people, which which I thought was an interesting phrase. And uh, he's come in and his reading of the game, his turning from defence into attack, particularly this season, has been unbelievably impressive. And uh, as uh, that listener rightly points out, he will he's the absolute lock in that three-man midfield. And it's all the more impressive, given that they signed the likes of Naby Keita and Fabinho in the last 12 months. People that you might suspect would have replaced or would have been seen as an upgrade on Genie Alden, but uh, the only upgrade that they needed was a better Wijnaldum this season, and he's gone on and done that. Yeah. Okay,
0: one final comment here uh, Sexton is a winner and he hates to get beat. I'm surprised at the reaction of a lot of Munster fans. I would have thought they would respect the way he played, as that is the way they have played for years. Hashtag OTBAM. All right, it's all Well, res- Munster fans, respects, why do you hate Johnny Sexton so much? It's all respect uh, for Johnny Sexton. World Player of the Year, and all you're doing is pouring crap on him. Well, like if, you, if you're not going to pour crap on world player of the year, then who are you going to pick? Um, yeah, okay, you got to punch up, I suppose, is the uh, the way that goes. Uh, stay tuned tonight on the radio from 7 o'clock, obviously. There will be pre-match preview, but the big game is live and exclusive on uh, News Talk on Off The Ball this evening. We'll obviously be keeping everything else up to date on Off the com. We're checking out, having a noodle around our new website. Uh, this show streams live on it every morning it uh, automatically crops up and opens up um, anytime we are live, and that's the same when we go live with all the rest of our output across the day, so the Keith Andrews show Wednesday Night Rugby, Thursday Night Football with John Giles they all go out live on offtheball.com you can watch them, you can just listen to them uh, if you can't wait for your radio fix every night on News Talk as well, so it's a whole new adventure in broadcasting, we'll see you again tomorrow at 7.45, make sure you uh, listen to that game tonight, we'll see you, good luck so if you like this you'll probably also like OTVAM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show. Subscribe to the OTVAM podcast stream or catch the show live on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook or offtheball.com every morning from 7:45 a.m.